So those who are visiting with us, welcome. We're glad you're here. And uh, to those who have been coming for years, we're glad you're here as well. Um, it is just good to be together on the Lord's Day. We are jumping back into the Gospel of Matthew uh, after taking a little break over the summer to go through some psalms. We're jumping back into the Gospel of Matthew. You can turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14 is where we're picking up, just where we left off. Matthew chapter 14. We're actually going to get through Matthew 14 in two weeks, which is like record pace for our study in Matthew so far. Um, but Matthew 14 is where we're going to be today. Now, throughout the Gospel of, of Matthew, if you can remember what we've uh, been going through over the past few years at this point, uh, the main theme of the Gospel of Matthew has been the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. And Jesus has taught us about the qualities of kingdom citizens and the law of the kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he's displayed the kingdom's power through his miracles, his healings. He's explained the nature of the kingdom of heaven through parables. And now as we come to this next section in Matthew 14, Jesus continues to teach and do signs and, and wonders. But the pace of the narrative, the pace of the story, uh, begins to pick up as the time of Jesus' crucifixion comes nearer and nearer. Our text in Matthew 14 this morning really is a contrast between two kings. A contrast between two kings, between Herod, a fraudulent king who embodies the wickedness of those consumed with their, their own illusion of, of power and pleasure, and King Jesus who embodies the pure, selfless love, compassion, and generosity that accompanies his humble yet divine power. Really, our, our text this morning reveals the goodness and sufficiency of Jesus as the King of Heaven. And let's read our text, starting in verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We only have five loaves here and two fishes. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, 
he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Oh God, we praise you, and we give you thanks for your word. Lord, that it contains all we need for life and godliness, that it is truly sufficient, inerrant, inspired, infallible, perfect in every way, given to us that we might be equipped for every good work, given to us that we might know you, the living God, given to us that we might believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask for your help. Lord, we, we confess our weakness, Lord, our sinfulness, and, and we acknowledge, Lord, that these things keep us from understanding and accepting your word how we should. But, Father, we thank you that by your Spirit, Lord, your word transforms us, that you can give us understanding, that you can teach us and make us more like Jesus Christ, your Son. And, Lord, that is our request of you today. As we come to your word, would you grow us in Christ? Would you draw us nearer to him, Lord? And as we, as we consider his kingship and his goodness this morning, I pray that you would open our eyes, that he would be exalted, that we would delight in Christ today, that we would leave today saying, Jesus is so good. We ask this, Lord, in his holy name. Amen. The title of our message today is A Contrast of Two Kings. As I mentioned, we're seeing a contrast here between Herod and Jesus. Between Herod and Jesus. Verses 1 through 12, of course, describe Herod, the wicked king, while verses 13 through 21 paint a picture of King Jesus, the good king. Now, we're introduced to Herod in verse 1, uh, but we need a little bit of backstory here. We need a little bit of history because there's more than one Herod in the Bible. Uh, the Herod we meet at the beginning of Matthew, uh, who tries to kill baby Jesus, that's Herod the Great. This Herod is his son. This is Herod the Tetrarch, known as Herod Antipas. Now, Herod Antipas was not actually a king. Matthew refers to him in, in verse 1 as a Tetrarch. And later on, we see that uh, he's referred to as a king. Now, Herod was the ruler of an area called Perea, which was on the other side of the Jordan, east of the Jordan, and, and the area of Galilee, which was to the west of the Sea of Galilee. Now, despite this, I, you know, despite the fact he was only a tetrarch, which is a couple rings down from a king, Herod Antipas tried to call himself a king to boost his ego, right? He wanted everybody to think of him as a, as a king like his father. Herod Antipas was an Idumean, and that means that he was not Jewish, but he actually was a descendant of Esau, who's from the nation of, of Edom, who were uh, really kind of enemies with Israel. And Herod had a pretty tumultuous reign. He was not a great king, and he lived in uneasy tension with his Jewish subjects. And we read in verse 1 that Herod finally hears about the fame of Jesus. It reaches his ears. He hears about this prophetic miracle worker who's doing these amazing things. And verse 2 is Herod's explanation to himself for this Jesus and what he's doing. And Herod comes to a very interesting conclusion. He says, this must be 
John the Baptist, who's come back from the dead with miraculous power. The rest of this section explains why Herod would come to this conclusion, which we'll look at more in a minute. But notice that Herod's explanation is a superstitious one. It's a superstitious one. He seems to have inherited this superstition from his father, King Herod the Great, who apparently saw the ghosts of his own murdered sons in his palace. And when Herod says John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, he's, he's not talking about resurrection. right? That's Jewish theology that Herod does not have. This is superstition. This is like a ghost. Right? This is like Herod is being haunted by John the Baptist. And it, it seems to be rooted in a guilty conscience. Because as we read just a moment ago, John the Baptist is dead and Herod is responsible. And a guilty conscience is a powerful thing. And John the Baptist, of course, if you remember back to Matthew chapter 4, was arrested all the way back then. And we learn about the reason why here in verse 3. John was seized and put in prison by Herod for the sake of Herodias, which is the wife of Herod's half-brother, Philip. And what had happened, it's really kind of like a soap opera, is that Herod had an affair with Herodias. Herodias was Herod's half-brother's wife, right? Sordid affair. Both of them end up divorcing their spouses and getting married to each other, right? Herod and Herodias. And John the Baptist is a mighty prophet of righteousness, and he speaks out against this publicly and privately, to, to Herod directly. And he says, as we see in verse 4, this is not lawful, this should not be done, this is wrong, this is adulterous, this disobeys God's commands, this, this violates God's will. And that, that's really the main role of what prophets do. We think about them talking about future events, and they do that, but really the main message of the prophets is, um, repent. You, O nation of Israel, or you, Herod, are breaking God's law. Turn back, turn back. And that's what... John does. And just like all the other prophets in the Bible, his message is not well received. He ends up in jail. We have to remember there's no freedom of speech in those days. There's not a constitution uh, to protect John the Baptist like we enjoy. To speak out against a ruler was to risk imprisonment or even execution. Uh, but John's concern was not his own life. It was not his own safety. It was truth and righteousness. He feared nobody but God, and was willing to pay the price. Herod, on the other hand, feared everybody but God. Look at verse 5. He, he wanted to put John the Baptist to death, but he didn't because he feared the people. He feared his subjects. He's afraid that if he kills John, who the people love, they'll rebel, they'll uprise against him, and that he will risk losing his power and his pleasurable life. But an opportunity comes up in verse 6. Herod's birthday. Now Herod, much uh, like other rulers in his day, would throw wild, drunken feasts on, on special occasions, right? This is going to be an egregious and overindulgent birthday party uh, for himself, right? He's throwing it for himself. He's going to have rich food there, lots of drink, lots of guests, lots of, lots of debauchery, right? Everybody who's anybody is going to be there. And Herod, he wants to impress them. He wants to make a good impression. And one of the events of the party that we read about in verse 6 is Herodias' daughter coming out to dance before everybody at the party. And we know from history her name is Salome. And she's probably about 12 to 14 years old. About 12 to 14 years old. Um, and there's some debate over the nature of this dance. Um, 
Was it merely a dance? Was it provocative? Was it sexualized? It's really hard to say for sure from the text. And it doesn't explicitly state it in the text. Uh, but given Herod's depraved nature, I have no problem at all believing this dance was not rated PG. Now Herod, is, he's pleased with this dance, we read. And in his drunken state, he makes a promise to Salome, an oath to give her whatever she wants. In Mark, uh, the same account, chapter 6, verse 23, uh, we read that Herod even promises to give her half of his kingdom, up to half of his kingdom. It was really a foolish promise. Really a foolish promise. But Herod is most certainly drunk and probably inflamed with lust. And it's just really a sick, sick account. Herodias, Herod's illegitimate wife, seizes the opportunity here. Uh, we read in Mark's Gospel, she has a grudge against John the Baptist. She hates him. And she sees an opening for her to get back at him and request the one thing she hasn't been able to get from Herod so far, John the Baptist's death. But Herodias, notice, doesn't request a normal execution. No, she hates John the Baptist far too much to stop there. She asks for his head on a platter like another dish at the feast. She doesn't want justice. She wants revenge. She wants to humiliate and disgrace John for speaking out against unrighteousness. And, and notice here how both Herod and Herodias use this girl. They use Salome. They just see her as an object that they can use and manipulate to get what they want. Just an object to, to fuel their own desires. That's part of what the wickedness of sin does. It causes us to view other people not as precious image bearers of God, but as tools, as objects. They become things to use instead of people to love. Right? They're just a means to an end for people's own pleasure, goals, desires. Herod and Herodias are consumed with themselves and they will use another human being to get what they want. John the Baptist, on the other hand, stands in great contrast to Herod and Herodias. Think about it. He hasn't tried to use Herod or Herodias for his own gain at all. He actually values them as human beings and is willing to say hard things that they need to hear to them. Right? John the Baptist cares enough about Herod and Herodias to tell them, you shouldn't do this. This is wrong. Even though he knows what that's going to get him. He has nothing to gain by preaching against them. But he wants to do what pleases God and what's good for Herod and Herodias. Now, Herod's faced with a dilemma at this point. He realizes that he has made a promise that has been a little rash. And in verse 9, he, he's sorry. Right? He's sorry. What is Herod sorry for? What's Herod sorry for? Is he sorry for imprisoning John, the prophet of God? Is he sorry for his adultery? Uh, is he sorry for the unjust execution that he is now bound to commit? Now, Paul describes two kinds of sorrow and grief in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There's two kinds of sorrow a person can have. Godly sorrow leads to repentance that is concerned with doing what God commands regardless of the cost, while worldly grief leads to simply being sad about the consequences that happen to you because of your sin. So is Herod's sorrow worldly or godly? It's worldly to the core. 
It's worldly to the core. He's sorry, not because he's about to commit murder. He's sorry because he's now forced to do what he doesn't want to do. And now he has to risk the uprising of his subjects. He's sorry because his actions may cause him problems, but he's not sorry for his sin. He is a wicked man. If Herod was genuinely sorry, his actions would demonstrate repentance. He'd say, you know what? Doing what is right and not murdering this man is more important than a rash promise I made. But tragically, that's not what we see. Herod, after all, is surrounded by all of his guests, right? These influential people. And they've all heard him make this generous promise. Because you know Herod made it in front of all of them, right? He wants to appear as this great and benevolent king, make this oath in front of all of them to impress them, but now he's backed into a corner. He's either going to lose face before these powerful and influential guests, or he will incite the anger and rebellion of his Jewish subjects. Herod has no fear of God. Notice how God's not even a factor in Herod's thinking here. Right? Herod is just concerned about pleasing this group or that group. Right? Herod is only concerned about what's going to be beneficial for him. And so to keep his reputation before his guests, he commands the execution to be done. And John the Baptist is beheaded in prison. This honorable, mighty, godly prophet is treated like less than an animal by the rulers of this world. And that's why when Herod hears about Jesus, his response is an irrational one, a fearful suspicion. Right? He has a guilty conscience. And he is afraid that John has come back from the dead, probably to get him. So we see the martyrdom of John the Baptist. He's like those figures in Hebrews 11 who suffered for their faith. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. We see John the Baptist join their ranks. And with the death of John, there's no prophet left but Jesus, who is the ultimate and final prophet. But John's death really prefigures what's going to happen to Christ. Right? If, if Herod would treat John the Baptist this way, how much more will Jesus, the greater prophet, suffer at the hands of wicked men? And so too, brothers and sisters, if we are to have a bold witness for Christ and do the hard thing and say the hard thing for the sake of God's truth and God's righteousness, we can anticipate hostile treatment from the world. And John's disciples come in verse 12. They come to get his body. And we don't know if they snuck into the prison to get it out. It could be that John's body was just thrown outside. But John's followers want to honor him, and they want to give him a traditional Jewish burial. And no doubt they're grieved, and without John, they have nobody to go to but the one that John proclaimed. They go to Jesus. We see at the end of verse 12. Now Herod, again, he's not even a king, right? But King Herod typifies, he, he, he exemplifies the wicked rulers of earth. 
before Herod, after Herod, there have been many rulers who have indulged their wickedness and killed those who have stood for truth and for righteousness. Um, righteous and good rulers, when you look at human history, righteous and good rulers are the exception. They are not the norm. They are not the norm. The Herods of history are many. Herod really is just one of the many kings of Babylon mentioned in Revelation 18 and who has found immorality in the blood of the martyrs. And, and, and when we consider Herod, we may be reminded of rulers in our own day, both in our own country and around the world, who commit great evil, who plan and promote the killing of innocent life, like the unborn, who attack Christ and His truth and His people. There are many Herods that exist today that seek nothing but their own power and pleasure. And when we consider how there are so many in power who seem actively opposed to righteousness, our hearts may become heavy. We, we become discouraged, distressed, and, and that's right. If we didn't care about that, there would be a problem. If we are not grieved by the presence of evil in the world, there is a problem with us. But at the same time, we must remember there is hope. There is hope. There is a better king. Let's look at the next section of our text as we turn to Jesus, a good and generous king. And we don't often think about the death of John the Baptist and the feeding of the 5,000 as connected together, right? We don't really think about those things as related events, but they're completely related. It's the natural flow of the text in, in this gospel. John's disciples come to Jesus to tell him about what's just happened to John. Now you may be wondering, is this news to Jesus? He is God after all. Doesn't he know everything already? Um, but one thing we need to understand is that Jesus has two natures. He's fully God and fully man. Right? He's fully God and fully man. And while his divine nature is all-knowing, his human nature is not omniscient. Right? It's impossible for humanity to be omniscient. That's an attribute that belongs to deity, to Jesus' divine nature. So this news of John the Baptist's death comes as genuine surprise and shock to Jesus. This is tragic news. Jesus doesn't know this already. And Jesus' response is very human. Look what he does. He, he withdraws from there in a boat to a desolate place to be by himself. And Jesus loved John the Baptist as a prophet, as a fellow servant of God. But remember, John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. This is his family member. And Jesus has just heard that John was unjustly executed in a horrible way by King Herod. And when Jesus hears this, he wants to be alone. He withdraws. That's a, that's a real human emotional response, isn't it? That's a relatable response, isn't it? And it really highlights the genuine humanity of Christ. He wants to be alone, probably to pray, to just be in his Father's presence. You've probably felt like that. When you're going through grief, you want to sometimes just be alone. And so Jesus gets in a boat and he heads to a desolate place. But the crowds find out that Jesus is on the move. They hear that he's headed somewhere and they follow him. I, I, I don't know. I suspect they probably don't know what happened to John the Baptist. Maybe they do. But nonetheless, when Jesus gets out of the boat in the desolate place, he's not alone. The crowds are there on the shore waiting for him. 
It's not just a couple people, but Matthew tells us it's a great crowd. Now think about Jesus for a minute. Right? He's just lost his cousin in a horrible, horrible martyrdom done by this wicked, wicked king. If you and I were in that position, grieved, weighed down, wanting to be alone, we get to the place where we're hoping to be alone and there's a giant crowd there, how would you respond? How would you respond? We probably would not respond very well, right? We would probably yell at the crowd to leave us alone, get out of here, we'd get back in the boat and head somewhere else where the crowds couldn't go, right? Sometimes we respond that way with people when we even haven't even had our morning coffee, right? And, and Jesus is in a, a state of deep grief here, deep loss. Right? And if, 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 if we did respond that way, right, you know, get out of here, leave me alone, well, that'd be a somewhat understandable response, right? But what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? This is amazing. What is his response to this oblivious, needy crowd? He has compassion on them. That's Jesus' response to this crowd that has followed him to his quiet place. He has compassion on them. He has compassion on them. Uh, the crowds are inconvenient from our perspective, aren't they? And yet Jesus' response is one of perfect patience, perfect compassion. He's kind towards them. And beyond that, he actually heals their sick. He, he doesn't even say, you know what, guys, I'm going through a tough time. I need to just be alone. That, that would be okay, but he doesn't even do that. He goes beyond that and actually heals their sick. He cares for those who are in need. This is such a perfect display of his own selfless, humble love, and it reveals something we need to understand about God, about Christ. Um, sometimes people think they can bother God with their problems. Right? Have you ever thought that God has more important things to do than deal with you and whatever little thing you're, you're, you're dealing with? Have you ever thought that, oh man, I know I've prayed about this already. God's probably getting annoyed if I keep praying about it again and again and again. Have you ever felt that way? That God's just too busy for you, that you're an inconvenience for him? Has that ever made you hesitate to approach him? Look at Jesus' response, friends. Look at his response. If he is not bothered by a crowd of 5,000 plus people, he will not be bothered by you. He will not be annoyed by you. He will not be inconvenienced by you and your needs and your problems. His heart is one of pure and selfless love, and he will have compassion on you. He will have kindness towards you. So be encouraged by this, that even in your weakness, your sin, your, your sickness of body or of soul, Jesus will have compassion on you when you come to him. And what a contrast that is we see with Herod, who's concerned with nobody but himself. He's all about he, himself, and him. But Jesus is genuinely concerned with the good of those who seek him. He's even willing to put aside his own, his own uh, you know, situation to be compassionate and kind, to care for the needs of his people. What a contrast between these two kings. And it appears that there's so many people here that need to be healed uh, that a problem actually arises. It's evening now. The crowds are still there. Maybe there's even more people who haven't been healed yet. Maybe they're waiting for Jesus to teach them like he's done so many times. But either way, there they are. It's starting to get dark. There are thousands and thousands of people here. And the disciples realize, in verse 15, uh, that this could be a problem here. That this is something that needs to be solved. And so they go to Jesus and they say, Jesus, send them to the villages so that, that they can get something to eat. There's nothing to eat out here. This is a desolate place. 
And the disciples aren't necessarily being callous here, right? They see a need. They try to propose a solution to it. But as Spurgeon remarks, they, they have the compassion of men who see the need. But to their human thought, there seemed to be one poor way out of it. Namely, in effect, to shirk the difficulty by sending the multitude away. The disciples don't see any possible way to provide for the needs of the crowd. So they say, well, they, they probably need to go somewhere else to get some help. The disciples, you see, are really only thinking about what they have the ability to do. Right? They're only thinking about what they can do, which is nothing. The disciples can't do anything to solve this problem. When they bring the matter to Jesus, Jesus doesn't see things the same way as them. And he doesn't agree with their solution. Uh, in verse 16, Jesus tells them, well, they don't need to go away. You, disciples, you give them something to eat. Right? He puts this problem right back in the lap of the disciples. He doesn't let them avoid the opportunity to show compassion and generosity to the crowds. But the problem is all the disciples can see is what they lack. All they can see is what they don't have. They say, well, Jesus, we only have five loaves and two fish. That's, that's not even a drop in the bucket for this many people. We don't even know if that's enough to feed the 12. To the disciples, this is an impossible situation. But there is a lesson they need to learn here. And so in verse 18, Jesus tells them, bring the food to me. What the disciples cannot do, Jesus can. The amount of food is no obstacle for him. The disciples are, are, are tested here. Jesus is calling them by faith to put what they have in his hands, to entrust it to Jesus, that he might do what they can't with it. And so Jesus tells the crowds to sit down. He takes the food. He gives a blessing, probably giving thanks. And then he breaks the loaves and gives them to the disciples. The text doesn't say anything about the loaves suddenly multiplying into thousands and thousands and thousands in a pile right there in front of Jesus. There's no indication that the bread of the fish changed in any appearance or any visible way. It just looked like bread and fish. But as the disciples begin to distribute the food, something miraculous happens. The crowd eats. There's enough for everybody. And everybody is satisfied. In fact, there's so much food from these, these five loaves and two fish. There's so much food there that there are 12 big baskets of broken pieces left over. Right? This is incredible, especially considering as we read in verse 21, there's 5,000 men here. That's not even counting women and children. That could bring the number up to 20,000. 20,000 people fed from five loaves and two fish. This is not something that normally happens, right? This is what we call a miracle where God does something that is out of the ordinary, that doesn't align with how nature usually works, he does something completely amazing. This is a miracle. It's not a magic trick. In the hands of Jesus, the bread and the fish become a feast for all. The disciples put what little they had into Christ's care. And Jesus made it abundantly sufficient for the task at hand. Friend, is, is your lack of faith in the power and provision of God keeping you from being as generous to those in need as you could be? And Paul, in writing to the Corinthian church, encouraged them along these lines to trust in God's provision to help support the Jerusalem believers. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it's written, he's distributed freely He's given to the, to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread 
for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Paul called the Corinthian church to trust what they had into God's care, that God might use it and multiply it to bless others. What opportunities we might be missing out on to see the hand of God at work in amazing ways simply because we're concerned about what we think we lack. But not only does this miraculous feeding display Christ's compassion and generosity, it actually focuses on something more than that. Christ's deity. His deity. One commentator notes that this miracle calls to mind God's supernatural feeding of the Israelites with manna in the wilderness wanderings in Moses' day. And so while we see the compassionate heart of Christ on display here, we're directed, more importantly, to the deity of Christ. This miracle identifies him with and as the God of Israel, who fed his people with bread in the wilderness. And consider the divine power required to do something like this, to feed 20,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. J.C. Rao remarks that Christ called that into being which did not before exist. He provided visible, tangible, material food for more than 5,000 people out of a supply with, which in itself would not have satisfied 50. The power required to do this miracle is nothing less than the power to create out of nothing, which only God can do, as we see in the opening pages of Genesis. Jesus does here what only God can do. He creates. He creates bread and fish that did not exist in this universe before. He's, he's not, you know, transporting bread from the other side of the Sea of Galilee in the air. So that's not what's happening. Jesus is creating it out of nothing. That's Jesus' deity on full display. Though he has taken on humanity in his incarnation, he is still the uncreated second person of the Trinity. And that makes a contrast with Herod that's very striking. Herod throws this debaucherous, luxurious, indulgent feast for himself. He's not even a real king, right? He's a, he's a poser. This is a feast that results in death, right? It's, it's, it's a feast of wicked extravagance. But Jesus, who is the God of all glory in the flesh, glorious beyond imagination, provides a humble and simple life-giving feast for his people. And this feast of simple bread and fishes as we read in the text, is satisfying, abundantly sufficient. It was all that his people needed. And maybe this is what you need to hear about Jesus this morning. He is sufficient for you. He is sufficient for you. He's sufficient to provide atonement for your sins through his death on the cross. He is sufficient to reconcile you to a holy God. He is sufficient to provide eternal life for you through his resurrection. He's sufficient to provide hope and joy and peace for you here in this life. He is sufficient to provide for your needs. He's sufficient to guide and shepherd you. He is the all-sufficient, all-good, all-providing King who reigns forever and ever. The King who is our hope as we see the wicked kings of this earth. Will you, like the crowds and the disciples, will you come to him in faith, trusting him to save you, to keep you, to provide for you?
He is so good. Who else would we go to? Let's pray together. Our King Jesus, we praise you. You are abundantly good. Lord, every blessing in heaven, every treasure of the wisdom of God is hidden in you. Oh Lord, may we see your goodness this morning. May we delight that you are our King. That by faith, by your grace, you have called us into your kingdom to be your subjects. And that though we grieve over the wicked rulers of this earth, that we have a far better hope and we know that our King wins. That our King will remain on his throne, unlike Herod, unlike any other ruler in history. But you, Lord Jesus, your kingdom is so good and it is everlasting. Would you encourage us with this, Lord? May we rejoice in your goodness today. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen.